Welcome, adventurers. This week, just a little bit about the rules and how they affected the stories from season three. Joel Rigetti's Speaking Stone Studio presents... Tales from the Dungeon. Hello, everybody. Uh, As we speak, Season 3 has ended. I cannot thank everyone that has listened and supported me this far enough. I really do appreciate it. Uh, I am going to go ahead and get started as these episodes tend to be a little bit longer. I'm going to try my best to stay a little more on task this time uh, and just keep it to the rules. I usually wind up pontificating on uh, a lot of things as well. Uh, how the game can be played in many different ways and thoughts, but I'll try to be a little more efficient, and we'll see how that goes. Uh, so I'm going to move right into the very first uh, story, Into the Fire, which was a quite long uh, arc. It was a five-episode arc, but the way I'm going to try to do these is I'm going to reference uh, the context in the story and then the rules. So story... This story was a... A story about Karia and her hired friends, and they moved into a very harsh, rockish, desertish environment on a thieving mission. So that's kind of the general context. So one of the rules I did want to touch touch on in regards to that is environment. Do you, as a dungeon master, also use the environment as an element, as a challenge, or is it just monsters and traps? It's just another opportunity to change the manner in which you challenge your players. So I'm going to pick up the Dungeon Master's Guide, uh, page 110, and read just a little bit about something that would be, in this adventure, extreme heat. There you go. Let me grab it. Page 110 in the DMG. Flipping to the page. I got a bookmarker. I'm just going to read Extreme Heat. This whole chapter, chapter 5, is actually about environment, and it's uh, it's a good read, so I would check out chapter 5 in the DMG. But specifically to this episode, I'm going to read Extreme Heat. When the temperature is at or above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, a creature exposed to that heat and without access to drinkable water must succeed on a constitution-saving throw at the end of each hour or gain one level of exhaustion. The DC is 5 for the first hour, increases and increases by 1 for each additional hour. Creatures wearing medium or heavy armor or who are clad in heavy clothing have disadvantage on the saving throw. Creatures with resistance or immunity to fire damage automatically succeed on the saving throw, as do creatures naturally adept to hot climates. So I just wanted to touch on that real quick because that is a rule that could be implemented in your game, having environment. And there's many other ways, cold, uh, that it's in there. Check check out that page. So that's a rule. And in this story, definitely would have affected it. But they, Karia hires Fion, the guide, and she, Fion helps Karia out uh, with guiding her and her other hiree, Koi, through the desert and avoiding that extreme heat. So. There's one. Uh, The other thing I want to talk about as a thieving episode is stealth checks. And I just wanted to go over rogues and how amazing they are at stealth. Uh, I'm going to use Karia, who is the main character for the story as the example. 
She is a level 11 rogue, and what happens is many amazing things when you get to level 11. Uh, rogues at that level get a skill called Reliable Talent. Reliable Talent allows your rogue to, when making any skill check, if anything rolled 9 or less is considered to be a 10. So that is pretty frickin' amazing. Uh, it just means your skill checks are way more likely to succeed, especially with rogues and stealth. So the next thing I'm going to add on to that skill that she got at level 11 is the fact that she has an 18 dex, 18 dexterity, and she is the other roguish skill from the beginning. She has expertise, which allows you to double the proficiency bonus in one, uh, they have multiple, but in one a certain amount of picked uh, skills. So Karya has expertise in stealth, and at level 11, that's a plus four proficiency bonus, plus four for her decks, but then expertise plus four again. So that's 12 total. Four and four and four is a total of 12. Now you put that on that reliable talent we just discussed, and before Karya picks up the dice to make any stealth roll, she's sitting at 22. That's really high when you look into the world of success in D&D. If you look on the players in, not on, but in the player's handbook, page 174, there's a layout of difficulties, and this is kind of a reference for both characters and, uh, and, and dungeon masters to see when a character says, I would like to, or I'm going to try to. There's usually a difficult, a DC difficulty challenge rating to the task, and uh, on that page, Player's Handbook 174, it lays out a scale, and it skips 5, 10, 15, 20, and it ranges from very easy to 30, which it says nearly impossible. So just to think about Karya, she, before she picks up the dice, she's at 22, which is always at, uh, already at very difficult tasks. Uh, and there's one other thing that happens in this story, Fion uh, uses a spell, Pass Without a Trace, and when with your, when you're within 30 feet of the caster, Fion in this case, that adds another plus 10. So, Karya, before she rolls the dice, is sitting at 32 for her stealth check, which is uh, amazing. That means she should be able to sneak through almost any situation. This could be frustrating to some dungeon masters as at 32, you know, I have this picture in my head of someone breakdancing through the middle of an open room, but <laughs> that's probably uh, all, the, all the way impossible. So this is nearly impossible. So Dungeon Master, you have to decide, are you going to make rooms that are impossible to stealth through? Or are you going to go the other route and be narrative and just really empower that character and describe that nearly impossible way they make their way through sneakily unseen through some area. Uh, in this story, we see Karya going upside down on a roof through shadow over guards, and uh, it's just an opportunity. And then the last thing that's sort of rules, uh, I wanted to point out that both the uh, both the hired uh, helpers for Karya were multi-class characters. So if you read Player's Handbook, Chapter 6, page 163, it has the rules and uh, regulations, how you wind up being multi-class. I'm not going to go over those exactly. I just wanted to point out that it adds a lot of flavor to not just necessarily be just a fighter, just a rogue, just a wizard. 
not that those aren't good. It's great to be just those and quite powerful, but it also adds cool flavor to make multi-class characters. And in this story, you see that Fion, their desert guide, is uh, part druid and part trickster cleric, and you get a little bit of that flavor in the story. And then Koi, the half-elven bow person with them, is a level 6 fighter with a champion subclass and a level 5 rogue with the assassin subclass. And it makes, uh, if you look at it, and if you read through the book at what those things get, it turns her into kind of a sniper scout. She's extremely stealthy, extremely deadly with a bow from distance. She also has the sharpshooter feat, makes her very deadly. She can get off a ton of shots, and with sneak attack damage and increased critical percentages, it's just a super high damaging lot of shot from far distance. Anyway, uh, if you are a patron, you can actually go on my Patreon page and see their character sheets, give you a little better idea of what they are. All right, that was the first story. Second story is Soul Set. That's episodes 35 and 36. Uh, the context here is a vampire that visits a well-established order of paladins and clerics in the Barata province. Um, really only one rule I'm going to go over here and then just touch briefly on the fact that this story is really about campaign uh, world building and history of my specific world, the, the Barata province. The Order of Soul, which is the cleric and paladin uh, order, is just big deal for... Uh, one of the characters in the story, Sarkeesian, who is the leader of the group that Mela is in. So that's kind of the context of the story. But I just want to really go over one mechanism which ha- uh, which, which allows this story to happen. And the nature of the story is it looks like one against many in a fort, and then in the end you wound up with an ambush, and this is actually the end or the destruction of the Order of Soul in the world. It's a historical event and the mechanism that allowed that to happen. I'm going to grab the monster manual here and flip to page 297. Flipping, flipping, flipping to 297. All right, and what I'm going to look at here is on, we're in the vampire, obviously, or not obviously, how I'm telling you. If you flip to 297, it's obvious. Uh, The vampire stat blocks, and under their actions, there's one that says bite. I'm not going to read most of that. It, it, it deals with the damage and if it hits and what kind of damage is taken. Uh, it's all pretty standard attack stuff. But at the end, which is the important part, uh, there's the sentence that says, A humanoid slain in this way, then buried in the ground, rises the following night as a vampire spawn under the vampire's control. So, again, a humanoid slain in this way, and then buried under the ground, rises the following night as a vampire spawn uh, under the vampire's control. So, when I read that, there's something that was missing from that statement, and I was shook my head and went, wait a minute, I, I need more. And then I threw it out to the internet and said, is this really the case? Uh, the thing that's missing from that statement, not missing, I guess, maybe intentionally left out, is it, it doesn't put a limit on that. It doesn't say, this can be done once, or the vampire control eight or nine or ten, and it is unlimited. So what happens in this story is the vampire Mordecai makes his way to a remote village uh, named Daggermount, 
there's a abbey of monks outside, and over a period of time, Mordecai takes over that entire town, and over, and that, over that period of time, he kills the entire town and the entire abbey. And that leaves him with roughly, if I remember my numbers correctly, 250 vampire spawn. So, as the mechanism of this story, Mordecai makes his way to to the uh, the Citadel, that's the home base of the Order of Soul. He looks to be by himself, and in the end, it's not. It's him and an army of 250 vampire spawn, and in a surprise attack, they overrun and kill the entirety of the Order of Soul. But the mechanism, the rules mechanism that allows that is... There's no limit to the number of vampire spawns set uh, set in the rules book, and I chose to accept that. <laughs> As a storyteller, obviously, or the creator of a world, I could cha- decide to limit that, but it it fit my wants and needs to let uh, Mordecai have that uh, overwhelming power and ability. And if you look at vampire spawn, uh, just flip one more page in the Monster Manual, 298, they have a challenge rating of 5. So you get 250 creatures with a challenge rating of 5. That's quite scary. Okay. And on to the next one. Uh, Favors, Follies, and Fate, episodes 37 and 38. Uh, I'm going to do more context and just broad brush this one. There aren't any specific rules I'm going to go over. There are a few points I want to hit in, hit on. Uh, this is a backstory about the character Ortoval, a cleric dedicated to the goddess Roselia. This would be how do you get a character into the story. With the backstory, with his backstory, he has a, a debt owed to someone he met during the Null Wars. And he feels, he receives a letter and it basically says, you, you've told me you owe me a favor. It's due. So that's just, as a DM, you always can be thinking about why, what gets characters in, and having a backstory is one of the easiest ways. And it's fun for a character, right? If you're a char- playing a character, it's fun to have a backstory and then have the DM acknowledge that and bring you in. So in this case, Ortoval's backstory owes a debt of his life, in his uh, opinion, to a wizard and former uh, commanding officer. And so she calls him in. And then it's really the rest of the episode is kind of a backstory. There is another interesting kind of, it's not so much a rule, but an overall thought of how your campaign is going to be run, which is, are the gods in your world passive or active? Is the only evidence of the gods in your world the cleric powers, the paladin powers they have? Or do the gods actually reach out in touch? Do they influence? Do they speak to the characters? Or do they give the characters feelings or not? Uh, if you listen to the story, there were a few moments in which I describe Ortoval's holy symbol uh, heating or cooling, and to me, that's that's a gentle um, a gentle way for the cleric to be influenced. This is kind of a tricky ground in a in a campaign, and it's something probably you want to discuss ahead of time because it can feel like as the DM you're influencing the character's decision making process. But in the end, that's got to be worked out between DM and character and in the world. Are gods very influencing? Are they totally hands-off? So big scale there. And then the last thing, which kind of is a rule, is I just wanted to say that one thing I like about 5e, when Ortoval makes his way through enemy lines, 
and finds a embattled, uh, surrounded group that he went to rescue. One of the reasons they're alive is they've fortified up, uh, they hold up on a defensible space, and their commander, a, which who is a wizard, is able to just keep firing out firebolt after firebolt after firebolt. Now, in the olden days, cantrips weren't necessarily a thing, and especially not offensive cantrips. And if you were a wizard, once you'd shot your two or three spells, or up to five, depending on what your intelligence modifiers were back then, you were done. You were done for combat. But what I like about 5e is that as cantrips, you always have some option, firebolt, shocking grasp, that allows you to continually have some sort of offensive uh, capability. And that's a rule and a change to the rules of the system that I really like. And doesn't hang wizards out to dry. So they're already the weakest as far as hit points go. So also making them non-offensive is kind of offensive. <laughs> anyway, I like that rule. Uh, skipping on to the next one, uh, a story of names and myths, episodes 39 and 40. This is really more history. Again, we touch, it's more of a history of the Order of Soul, important to uh, important to the province and important, again, to the character Sarkeesian. But the other thing that it allowed me to do is bring in third-party supplements. I just want to say it's so amazing how many creative people are making so many creative things out there in the world. So if you're ever interested, make sure you spend just a little bit of time on the internet to go out there and explore all the different things uh, that are created by different people. There's people that make adventures, they make characters, they make creatures, they make spells. And if you don't like D&D, go look for space stuff. There's people that make entire games, entire adventures for space. Uh, so just a wide world beyond the main massive creators are third-party creators. And in this episode, I had the honor of working with a creation made by a small company called the Underground Oracle, uh, Jess and Keith Pendley. So incredibly nice and so incredibly dedicated to what they do. They, When they put out supplements, they are super professional. They have professional art. They are formatted and they have they just look amazing and are full. It's just not a stat block. It's story. It's background. It's art. And uh, and they're beautiful. So I was able to work with their very amazing creature, the Zarlfus, and uh, that is the major part of the story. So third-party content creators, and if you want any of the stats or the rules, make sure to check out the Underground uh, Oracle, and you can get your hands on the Zarlfus yourself. And I'm just going to throw out their website, www.undergroundoracle. That's U-N-D-E-R, under, ground, G-R-O-U-N-D, ground, oracle, O-R-A-C-L-E, dot com. Uh, so www.undergroundoracle.com. They have that in hundreds and hundreds of more supplements. Probably not hundreds, anyway. They have a lot of supplements. They also have a Patreon, in which is like $3 a month, and you get an amazing amount of stuff. So check out Underground Oracle if you're interested in the Zarlfus or just third-party supplements in general. It's a great place to start. All right, next episode is The Influence of Virtue, which is a story that I wanted to point out. If you're a natural 20-tier patron, once a season I run a contest, I run a, you can put yourself a name in a hat, and you get to pick uh, one of the topics for one of my stories. This is the result of one of those stories. 
and I fell in love with it because the topic was basically take a character that isn't magically inclined, isn't overly strong, isn't isn't basically what we would think of a hero. And in my mind, this is an NPC and not a player character. Uh, that still accomplishes something good. So this story is about Hesed. She's a young storekeeper in a small town, and she winds up in the middle of, uh, of, of adventure that was brought to her, not that she sought out. The character Snare is still escaping the Baron of the Mummer's Fair. Uh, that's in a previous season, if you listen to that story. And she, Hesed, winds up right in the middle of it. And Snare, if you listen to him, is kind of this gray character who has had sort of a mixed past and got into trouble through his own making. Uh, but Hesed is this character that is very mor- moral and very thoughtful, and her decisions are those that she is based on what she believes in and what she believes to be right, and she winds up saving uh, this character, Snare. So one thing, there's not a lot of rules here. This is going to be more of a quick pondering because it's not a rule, and that goes to, are your NPCs part of your world? Are they more just like data points? Are they like a computer role-playing game where it's just a person that occupies a space And if your characters interact with them, they're going to get whatever little bit of data that one NPC has. That's one way to run NPCs. The other way I've seen and I've heard of is that that NPC really is something that becomes integral and important to your campaign going forward. They grow with the characters. They care about the characters. Or in this case, they're very vital to a character's survival and, and move through a certain place and that NPC has a huge influence on the outcome of the story. So the actually I will go over two rules that I feel like may have played into this story and that is at one point the thugs that are looking for Snare come to Hesed's shop and ask does she know anything about him? Now we know that Hesed does know, but Hesed terrified is trying to protect Snare. So this is where I would see an insight check happening on the part of the thugs and then a deception check on the part of Hesed. And I'm going to say that it went bad, medium to bad, and the 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 thugs have a pretty good feeling that Hesed is in fact hiding something, and it makes them very suspicious of her. In which case, Hesed, being a very uh, educated and intelligent uh, young woman, decides to use that in a kind of a daring and probably a little bit foolhardy plan and uses it to distract those thugs. She leads them on a wild goose chase out of town. And basically this is an opportunity when she would have told Snare, get out of town, leave town. I'm going to take them one way. You go the other way. This is your chance to escape, escape. And it works to a certain degree. The thugs follow Hesed out of town. What she didn't fully think through is these thugs have been in town and feel like they're onto something and they catch Hesed and are absolutely frustrated beyond frustrated and they drag Hesed back into town and basically threaten her life. Hesed is in mortal danger and they're saying, turn over this person that we think or believe or know you have or I'm going to kill Hesed. And... This is when there's another thing. This is when I see kind of a natural 20 moment for an NPC. 
Hesed stands up and delivers uh, a speech about her feelings and about morals. And uh, the town, which is a small lumber town, not a soldiering town, not a town without a big garrison of any sort, is being cowed by 20-ish thugs with weapons. And that's more than enough to make people who have never fought afraid for their lives. But as Hesed stands and delivers the speech, in my brain, there's a natural 20 rolled on her perception, uh, not perception, my apologies, on her persuasion. And that town is inspired to, to stand up to these thugs and they overwhelm the thugs. So NPCs, are they just a data point? Are they important? So the story, uh, what I was given and what I really enjoyed was the opportunity to make an NPC a vital and important part of a story. So. That was that. All right, last one for the season, the context, uh, sorry, Dreams and Nightmares, episodes 45 and 46. I will touch the context as Esmeray, the wizard who has been in the background of so many stories leading up to now. We finally kind of get a story about Esmeray herself. So, and it's, uh, we see the story of a young woman come to, a uh, young woman come to the Druid Hall uh, for a test, and we also see Esmeré visiting that same hall, and and it leads to, well, you have to listen to the story. But the rules that I would like to touch at one point, Esmeré, who obviously is at the hall for a not-so-moral uh, purpose, a little devious, you may say, winds up using a ninth-level spell, so I just wanted to say, read the player's handbook on page 267, and look at Prismatic Wall. It's an amazing spell. It has all of these different features where when it's cast, it to get through it, it causes acid damage, fire damage, force damage. It can trap the person within. It can exile them to another plane. So it's this crazy spell. So, But if you look at Player's Handbook, page 267, obviously level 9 spells are all going to be awesome. Uh, I loved this one and wanted to use it as a storytelling element. So... Esmeray uses it to trap the chief, the the head druid, Erdrith, and also to make a kind of a barricade blocking everyone that's in a temple in and everyone that's out out and allows Esmeray to uh, kind of unleash this deception and horror that she follows up on. Uh, The other thing that's it's kind of a rule or more of a consideration is does magic in your world end in the player's handbook? Is it only enchanting items and spells levels 1 through 9? Is that the end of magic? Is there more? Is there less? Does does your does the spells in your world only go to level 5? Or have you thinned out the magic book uh, where you don't allow every sort of spell? Maybe necromancy doesn't exist in your world. Maybe uh, divination doesn't exist in your world. So, But... In my world, I just wanted to point out that I thought about it in the rules in the Barata province are there is a thing such as coal that I would refer to as ritual magic, not to be confused with ritual casting, which is the ability that allows you to cast a spell without using a spell slot. But this is ritual magic, in which case a much larger expenditure of time, materials, um energy, research, and the requirement of multiple magic users, not just one, to to come up with a result that's much bigger than something that could ever happen in the just the spells in the player handbook. In this case, I use it to explain the the chamber 
that is basically a chamber of ultimate protection. Uh, it is sealed, uh, has a magical item of extreme importance sealed into it, and it makes that room impenetrable to damage, to magic, to dimensional travel. And that ritual was performed to protect this one item. Now, what what is that item? Um, uh, that is another rule that I will touch here. It is an artifact. Uh, and if you look in the Dungeon Master's Guide on page 219, it talks a lot about artifacts over the next few pages and what they are. There is a quote on page 219 that I really, really like, and it says, Characters don't typically find artifacts in the normal course of adventuring. In fact, artifacts only appear when you, and when it says you, it's referring to the DM, want them to, for they are as much plot devices as magic items. Uh, I just love that quote. They're as much plot devices as magic items. And in this case and in this story, we have this item. It's still a bit of a mystery, but it is referred to as the heart, and it is an immensely powerful artifact. So we will learn a little bit more about it, but also this is just the first touch on the fact that this is kind of what this story is about a little bit, is the the heart, this amazing artifact. So, so yeah, that's it. But think about artifacts. You can think about other campaigns and other worlds where these have influenced it as well but in this in this world the barata province we are beginning to get uh, the idea that this heart is a very very important thing and it is well i don't know if that was particularly faster uh, i hope it was a little more focused and that's that season three is over again i cannot thank you each and every one that has listened that has supported me that has told a friend that has retweeted that has mentioned a thumbs up liked reviewed anything it really just means the world to me uh these stories have gone so much longer when i started i was told myself i would do a season and now we're in three and I can't see the end is also very far off. It's it's probably another three to four seasons before the end of the, just this very first kind of story arc ends. So I thank you each and every one. And if you will stay tuned to next week, we will be doing some actual questions and answers about Tales from the Dungeon and the stories from season three. Thank you all. I'll see you next week. <laughs>